welcome to Trinity United Methodist Church in Duncanville, Texas. Today we conclude our sermon series, The Faith of John Wesley, an examination of our Methodist heritage and the life of its founder, John Wesley. Join us now for our message, Finishing the Race. Welcome to worship here at Trinity United Methodist Church in Duncanville, Texas. <clears throat> it's very great to see all of y'all here today in the sanctuary and to have all of you at home who are worshiping with us joining us as well. Today we're going to be exploring the lasting legacy of John Wesley and why he consistently repeated on his deathbed, the best of all is God is with us. So stay tuned for our message later. We do also have some special hymnody that we're going to be singing today. Our first hymn today is going to be Lift Every Voice and Sing in honor of Black History Month. And then our hymn of response and our closing hymn are going to be the two most popular Charles Wesley's hymns ever written. So but looking forward to that as well. If you do have prayer concerns or joys or request a blessing, we have the cards in the back for those of you in the sanctuary. And for those of you worshiping at home, just post your joy, concern, or your request for blessing right there in the Facebook feed, and we'll lift that up just a little bit later in the service. I also invite you to make an offering to the ministry of this church. You can do this <clears throat> through our website, tumcd.org, 
through our Church Center app or through just simply mailing a check to the church. And you can also make an offering to our February Communion Rail offering, which is in support of Heifer International, one of the best organizations I know dealing with world hunger and world poverty. You can do that as well through our Church Center app or by mailing a check to the church. Coming up, we are going to have our Ash Wednesday service on Wednesday, March 2nd at 7 p.m. That will kick off our season of Lent that leads up after six weeks to then wonderful Easter Sunday. Like I said, it will be March 6th, 7 p.m. It will have the traditional imposition of the ashes. And I just want some of you to be thinking about, particularly now that COVID numbers are starting to really, really come down very, very steadily, that if you haven't done so, you might think about starting to come back to church in person as part of your Lenten discipline, because we'd love to see your face here, actually here in the sanctuary, and be able to say hello to you face to face. And if some of you have been worshiping with us online and have yet to ever visit here, please start coming for Lent. We would be happy uh, to meet you as well. Our sermon series for the season of Lent is one that I'm looking forward to because Wesley and I tried to do this same sermon series two years ago, and then COVID came. So we've been postponing it until now. You may or may not recall that two years ago we did a sermon series through Advent that told the story of Christmas through the eyes, the first person eyes of those who were part of that story. And we're going to be doing the counterpart for that for Lent. So the sermon series will be called Easter in the First Person. And I really think um, it's going to be a great addition. And I'm certainly looking forward to being part of that sermon series as well. Just remember we have our three connection groups, two meeting on Sunday morning, our UM Disciplines class, and then our Lift class, which has been reading the book that is one of the books we read uh, to back up this sermon series we have right now on the, on the life of John Wesley. And then, of course, our pastor's Bible study, 7 p.m. on Wednesdays via Zoom. And now let's enter into a spirit of worship and prayer with this centering, uh, or excuse me, with this opening chorus. join me in our opening prayer. Almighty God, you have raised up servants to proclaim the gift of redemption and a life of holiness. For our spiritual forebears, John Wesley, Charles Wesley, Susanna Wesley, and others, we give you thanks. In their ministry, through their difficulties, and in spite of their weaknesses, you were their hope and salvation. You led them and others to create the Methodist heritage that is now ours. With all your people throughout the Wesleyan Connection, give us a new vision, new love, 
new wisdom, and fresh understanding that we may serve you more fully. Through Jesus Christ our Lord and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please stand as you're able and join me in our responsive call to worship. We come to hear the story of God's faithfulness to past generations, but we also look to the future as well as the past. The God who was with our ancestors is with us as well. Then we can go forward in hope. Whatever else fails, God remains faithful. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Praise be to God. We are blessed and grateful to be together in this space and with those of you at home as well, and our wish to you is peace be with you. And I'd like to invite Evelyn Glass forward to say a few words about our opening hymn. Please remain standing for our opening hymn, Lift Every Voice and Sing. It was adopted by the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People as the Negro National Anthem. The poem was penned by James Weldon Johnson and set to music by his brother, John Raymond Johnson. At the turn of the 20th century, the lyrics eloquently captured the solemn yet hopeful appeal for the liberty of black Americans. It's a protest song. It's a hymn and it's a prayer. Lift Every Voice and Sing appears in over 40 hymnals and set against the religious invocation of God and the promise of freedom. It was used as a rallying cry during the civil rights movement and today is sung at many church and sporting events wherever African Americans are gathered. Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter. We will sing the first and third verses of this hymn.
may be seated. Please join me in our prayer for illumination. Eternal God, in the reading of the Scripture, may Your Word be heard. In the meditations of our hearts, may Your Word be known. And in the faithfulness of our lives, may Your Word be shown. Amen. Our Scripture reading this morning comes from Paul's second letter to Timothy, chapter 4. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I solemnly urge you, proclaim the message, be persistent, whether the time is favorable or unfavorable, convince, rebuke, and encourage with the utmost patience in teaching. As for you, always be sober, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, carry out your ministry fully. As for me, I am already being poured out as a libation, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. From now on, there is reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. This is the word of God for the people of God. When we last left John Wesley, he was in his 70s, still traveling all over Britain with the good news of the gospel and as well as railing against the Atlantic slave trade. He preached the importance of having a vital personal faith relationship with God through Christ and in the power of the Holy Spirit, as well as, as, well as pursuing a life of holiness. Now at the same time, this holiness should manifest itself in love and service to others, including working to end social injustices such as the Atlantic slave trade. Now, decades before, in 1739, shortly after John began preaching out of doors, he bought an abandoned cannon foundry in London to serve as the center of Methodism in that capital city. And from there, multiple ministries were started, such as the micro-lending, housing for poor widows, Sunday school for the children who worked full-time in the surrounding factories. In addition, John continued to visit the poor and the elderly and the imprisoned. All these endeavors, personal visitations, the ministries of the foundry, his advocacy for the end of slavery, these were all examples of works of mercy. And such works of mercy constitute all the ways that we love our neighbor, and by extension, we display our love for God. After several decades, the Methodist movement began to outgrow that foundry, and it was decided to buy some nearby land and to build a new chapel, as well as a house for John Wesley himself. And the house would also serve as a lodging then for other Methodist pastors as they were passing through London. And it was completed in 1778, almost 40 years after the foundry was founded. And it's now called Wesley's Chapel. And the house and the chapel and the surrounding buildings, they still stand in London. And they're visited by, I don't know how many, Methodist pilgrims every year. And it's located right across the street from the cemetery where Susanna Wesley is buried. And if some of you have been to London, you may have visited Wesley's Chapel. If you haven't, I strongly recommend to do that next time you're in London. Well, the 40 years between the opening of the foundry and the building of Wesley's Chapel, as well as the years that followed, they were just filled with more uh, traveling and preaching and writing. 
As time passed, John became less and less controversial as many as the church began to appreciate all that he was trying to accomplish. And people began to see how having Methodists this there in the community ended up uh, helping those communities. And I guess they finally decided after all that John was not part of an elaborate plot to overthrow the British government. Well, one of Methodism's most important developments was the spread of the Methodist movement to the English colonies in America. And Methodists first started making an impact during the 1760s, but everything changed with the beginning of the American War of Independence that started in 1775. Frankly, John was horrified by the rebellion in the colonies. As an Englishman, he believed that those who lived under British rule were already the freest people on earth. How much more free did you want to be? And as a pastor, he abhorred war and all the suffering that it caused, particularly on the innocent. After America gained its independence, there were very few clergy to serve the people. Most of the Anglican priests had returned to England before the war started. So even though John never intended to start a new denomination, he very reluctantly agreed to establish a Methodist church in the now newly independent United States of America. And so even though he had disapproved of the revolution, disapproved of war in general, his pastor's heart just couldn't stand the thought of the people there not having spiritual leadership and not having access to the sacraments. So John ordained a young priest named Thomas Cope to be the first, he called it, general superintendent of the American Methodists. And Thomas Cope sailed to America and there he in turn ordained one of the few remaining Anglican priests there, Francis Asbury, also as a general superintendent. But it wasn't long before the title of general superintendent was changed just to the title of bishop. And so that made Thomas Cope and Francis Asbury the first two bishops of what would become known as the Methodist Episcopal Church. And so then from their names, Thomas Coke and Francis Asbury, then we get the name of the Methodist Supply House, Cokesbury. Well, ordaining two bishops was a very unconventional move on John's part, but he was always willing to do something that was novel or daring if he thought it was going to help spread the gospel. And one of the most unconventional things he ever did is he approved lay people as preachers. Now, John believed that only clergy should offer the sacraments. But he also believed that anyone who was devout and intelligent and filled with the Holy Spirit had the authority to preach. The first itinerant Methodist preachers were all laymen whom John had personally trained. Like John, they would travel from town to town then spreading the Methodist message. And unsurprisingly, as it so often was the case, it was his mother, Susanna Wesley, who first confronted him about lay preaching. One of the times when John was out of town in London, a young layman named Thomas Maxfield took it upon himself to preach there at the foundry in John's absence. And John became very alarmed when he found out that this was happening. He tried to stop him, in, in fact. But his mother met him at the door and said to him, my son, take care what you do next. Thomas Maxfield is as much called to preach as ever you were. And then after John heard him preach, he had to respond, Who am I that I should withstand God? 
So Thomas Maxfield became the first lay preacher in Methodism. And what was even more unconventional is when John later named a woman as a lay preacher, Sarah Crosby, the first Methodist lay preacher. And women have been preachers and leaders in the Methodist movement then from the very beginning. And though women did not achieve full clergy rights in the United Methodist Church, or excuse me, the Methodist Church, this is prior to it becoming the United Methodist Church, though women did not have full ordination clergy rights until 1956 in the Methodist Church, it was the fact that in one of its antecedent branches, the Methodist Protestant Church, they were ordaining women. And so when the Methodist Church was formed in 1939, they accepted those women into the clergy of the now newly formed Methodist Church. Um, my Aunt Nora, she's 84, and the Methodist Church that she went to in rural Louisiana, which she grew up, it was pastored by a woman who had been ordained in the Methodist Protestant Church and then therefore brought into the Methodist Church in 1939. Her name was Lula Wardlow, and this would have been when my aunt was there. She said it was during her junior high years. This has been about the, the early 1950s. And remember how many churches would have been pastored by a woman in the early 1950s? Not very many. And I might add that Lula Wardlow was also the very first woman ever elected the mayor of any city in the entire state of Louisiana. Not surprising, as a Methodist woman, you expect her to be doing things like that. Well, one of the hallmarks of Methodism throughout its history has been an ever-increasing inclusion of different groups and different classes of people within the church, and particularly in its leadership. Now, through the years, women have always enjoyed, I think, more opportunities of leadership within the Methodist movement than in other types of churches. And even though there's been a very mixed record Methodism has generally been fairly intentional about including racial and ethnic minorities in the church as well and in the leadership positions, but let's be honest, this has been a struggle. I mentioned earlier that the Methodist Church formed in 1939, and in 1939, the, the northern and the southern branches of the Methodist Episcopal Church decided to, re, to reunite. They, they had been torn apart through the issue of slavery. And so the northern and southern branches then, with the Methodist Protestant Church, formed in 1939 the Methodist Church. And then later on, in 1968, we united and merged with the Evangelical United Brethren, and then we became the United Methodist Church in 1968. But when we merged, before that, before that, Annual conferences are generally based exclusively on geography. But when those northern and southern branches merged in 1939, it was decided that no matter where they were throughout the nation, all of the black congregations would be gathered together in one conference called the Central Conference. Now, the good part of that is the black congregations could have their own bishops to be in, in, in the leadership of bishop. The flip side of that is that meant that no black bishop would ever have authority over a white annual conference or white clergy or white churches. In 1968, we uh, abolished the central conference. Uh, thankfully, we abolished that. But just to add confusion, nowadays, 
any annual conference outside of the United States is called the Central Conference because we don't want to make anything clear. We want to continue, but anyway. Just to add, uh, excuse me, while full racial equity remains to be achieved, and it does remain to be achieved, the great challenge facing the church today is whether the United Methodist Church is going to continue its legacy of ever greater inclusivity now with regard to the ministry with LGBTQ persons, and that will be the issue that will be discussed in our next general conference that is currently scheduled for this coming August and September, if it doesn't get canceled. An interesting aside, though, about John and his attitude toward women. He did eventually marry. I don't think a lot of people know that. As you recall, as a young man, he had a very ill-fated romance with Sophie Hopke back in Savannah, Georgia. And he ended up leaving Georgia with his heart broken and in disgrace. Well, years later, back in England, John became engaged to a young widow named Grace Murray. But his brother Charles did not approve of this match. And he interfered and he talked Grace into marrying one of the Methodist lay preachers instead of John. And so a few years after that, John fell in love with another widow named Mary Vizell. And afraid that his brother was going to intervene again, John decided to marry her very quickly. <laughs> he was 47 years old at the time. Unfortunately, with the haste in which they married, they didn't really know each other well enough. And it didn't take... Uh, but a few years before actually their marriage became quite strained. In a letter that he wrote to her that we still have, in an attempt to try to overcome their differences, John very helpfully made a list of 10 personal faults that she needed to work on. Now, he insisted that he was doing that just because he was trying to be a loving husband and save their marriage. He then included with this list of 10 faults, 10 very specific changes that she needed to make in order for their marriage to recover. It's no wonder she left him several times. <laughs> it seems to have never to have occurred to John that there might be faults he needed to work on. And eventually they just came to live separate lives. In fact, he was not even informed of her death until several days after her burial. Well, in addition to the greater inclusion of women and racial minorities, what are some other legacies that John Wesley has left us? Well, Methodism is characterized by a freedom of thought that is not often found in other types of churches. And one of John's uh, most famous sayings is, think and let think. And though he did not come up with this uh, particular saying, he quoted it often. In the essentials, unity in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. In other words, when it comes to that basic core of Christian belief, such as the kind that we might find in the Apostles' Creed, we should be affirming those, belief, those beliefs. But when it comes to matters of opinion that are not central to the faith, then we should just have the liberty to follow our own consciences. But no matter what, whether we agree or disagree, our relationships should always be characterized by charity, that is, by love. So the, in the essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. For example, even though he vigorously defended the Protestant understanding of the Christian faith, 
John also vigorously defended the minority Roman Catholics against prejudice and discrimination in English society. In his writings, he outlined why he strongly supported Anglican theology, but he also pointed out how their mutual love of Christ bound Protestants and Catholics together as Christian brothers and sisters. And when it came to political opinions, John also strongly advocated charity toward those that we might disagree. And he offered some advice that I think is every bit as relevant today as it was then. This is something that he wrote that came out on October 6, 1774. And we may want to remember that as our primary, primary elections come up here soon in a few weeks. I met those of our society who had votes in the ensuing election, and I advised them, one, to vote without fee or reward for the person they judged most worthy. Number two, to speak no evil of the person they voted against. And three, to take care their spirits were not sharpened against those that voted on the other side. If only we could remember that now. Methodism is also characterized by our theological method, which we refer to as the quadrilateral. In Wesley's writings, he regularly referred, referred to four sources of authorities, that, that is, four norms or four measuring sticks by which we discern, um, but we discern God's truth and we make responsible decisions about our Christian lives, both personally and in community. And as I said, these four sources became known as quadrilateral, and they include scripture, tradition, reason, and experience. We look first to scripture, for scripture is our foundational story of faith. In scripture, we find the record of God's revelation to us. The Bible is our most important authority, to be sure, but it is not the only one. We also value church tradition. I mean, think about it. It would be foolish to throw out 2,000 years of Christian tradition and all the discernment that we have worked for, that our foremothers and fathers have worked for to hand down to us. It would be like throwing out everything our parents or grandparents ever tried to teach us. Now we also then look to uh, reason as a source of authority. We're created in the image of God. We've been given this gift of reason. We've been endowed with an intelligence that is unique to our species here on earth. Without reason, we would be unable to absorb the wisdoms that we find in either scripture or tradition. And finally, we look to our experience to judge what we have discerned through scripture, tradition, and reason. I always think in the end, if what we have come to think and believe doesn't result in us living lives that exhibit the love of God for our neighbor and the alignment of our own minds then with the mind of Christ, that is, if it's not making a real difference in our lives, then maybe our thoughts and beliefs may not be worth having. At least it means we need to re-examine them. So we Methodists, we honor not only scripture, but, but tradition and reason and experience as well. And together, these four sources of authority combine to provide us with a very reliable, I think, very reliable and trustworthy guide to Christian life and faith. Now, because of our freedom of thought and our use of the quadrilateral, the Methodist movement has always been able to be this big tent when it comes to theological opinions. We have very theologically conservative Methodists, and we have very theologically liberal Methodists, and we have everything in between. It's not uncommon at all for a typical Methodist to hold some beliefs, 
that are quite traditional while at the same time holding other beliefs, beliefs that are considered quite progressive. And I love it, the fact that well-known United Methodist pastor and author Adam Hamilton, whenever he is asked if he is a liberal or conservative, always answers yes. Methodists do believe in some conservative values. We believe in conserving and preserving the historic core of the Christian faith and of holding timeless biblical values. We believe that individuals should have a vital personal faith in Christ that results in life, lives of holiness and that we should always be about the business of sharing our faith with others, making disciples of Jesus Christ and making sure that others know the good news of God's love in Jesus Christ. But these same Methodists also have some very progressive values. These same Methodist disciples then think we should be going out in the world and transforming it until it becomes the kingdom of God upon the earth, until the will of God is done on earth as is in heaven. This personal holiness must be met with social holiness until all the hungry are fed and, and all the outcasts and all the marginalized in society have been fully welcomed and affirmed in the household of God. So therefore, we Methodists, we're both liberal and conservative. We're both evangelical and progressive. And we're about the job of both evangelism and social justice. And there's finally one characteristic of Methodism that I think is the most important of all. Now, all Christians believe in the grace of God, but the Methodists put an emphasis on grace that is unique to our movement. We believe wholeheartedly that God loves each and every person on this earth and that God's grace is available to everyone who responds to Christ's invitation. We do not believe that God predestined only a relative few number of people for eternal salvation while condemning the rest to eternal hellfire. We believe that no just or loving God would do that. For God so loved the world, the entire world, and everybody and everything in this world that God became flesh and dwelt among us in the person of Jesus Christ. In the Methodist Church, we baptize infants because we want to stress that God's grace is available to everyone, even the little ones who are not even aware of God yet. And we have the most open communion of any church I know, for even the unbaptized are welcome to come forward and receive the grace of God here in the Methodist Church. I think this is all illustrated in the passage from Ephesians that Wesley read actually a few weeks ago, but it's a passage that John Wesley preached from time and a time uh, from the book of Ephesians. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of work, so that no one may boast. On February 23rd, 1791, at the age of 87, John Wesley preached his last sermon. He had prayed several years earlier, God grant that I may never live to be useless. And I think God certainly granted his request. So just seven days after that, on March 2nd, 1791, John Wesley laid in his, lay in his deathbed there in his home that was built there beside Wesley's chapel. And he was surrounded by many of his friends and his fellow Methodists. And according to eyewitnesses, John lay there and he kept repeating over and over again, the best of all is God is with us. The best of all is God is with us. The best of all 
is God is with us until he breathed his last. In the days following his death, over 10,000 people filed past his, ca his casket there at Wesley's Chapel. And he was buried behind the chapel, and his grave is there, and you can still visit it today. What I think one of the interesting things, if you ever get a chance to visit John Wesley's grave, it's a very old-fashioned type of gravestone. And right next to it is this very tall glass skyscraper type of building. And I think it's so interesting that you can see the reflection of Wesley's Chapel and the reflection of John Wesley's gravestone in this mirrored building that represents all that's modern with the world. And I love the juxtaposition that that, that, that shows, that that illustrates. Later, John was placed at number 50 of the 100 most influential people of all of British history. I think he played a pretty important role in American history and indeed world history as well. And so John Wesley, in the words of 2 Timothy that Wesley read earlier, he fought the good fight, he finished the race, and he kept the faith. I think one final legacy left to us by the Wesleys, and in this case, Charles Wesley, John's brother. John wrote a few hymns, but it was his brother Charles that wrote 400 hymns, many of which are standards of Christian hymnody sung by Methodists and other Protestants and Catholics to this day. And so our hymn of response and our closing hymn today, as I said earlier, are the two most popular Charles Wesley hymns of all time. And yes, we're going to be singing them out of season, but just think as we sing them how much these songs have meant in the seasons of the church. And so finally, I think John Wesley would leave us with these other words from 2 Timothy that Wesley read. I think this would be the instructions that John Wesley would leave to us if he were able to speak to us now. Proclaim the message. Be persistent whether the time is favorable or unfavorable. Convince, rebuke, and encourage with the utmost patience in teaching. Amen. We will sing all three verses of Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Please stand as you're able and join us.
Now we come to the part of our worship where we lift up our joys and concerns to the Lord. I want us to continue to be praying that peace remains in Ukraine. Uh, if you've been following the, the news here in the last few weeks at all, you know that uh, war between Ukraine and Russia looks imminent. And so we want to pray that peace prevails, that diplomacy wins out, and that innocent people do not suffer. So for all of the people of Ukraine and the people of Russia, Lord, in your mercy. I'm going to be praying also, we prayed for her last week as well, uh, the mother of one of my, well, one of my utterly oldest friends. Um, uh, literally, my friend Mike and I, and me, Mike, and Kay, oldest friends, we grew up in the same church together. We were like in the same nursery together as infants. And so in many ways, the parent, our parents are kind of like parents to each other as well. And so Mike's mom, Anne, and my mother's name was also Anne, she's been having a great deal of uh, medical difficulties and right now um, seems to be fully in her, in her dementia, which of course is, is uh, very upsetting. So we pray for Anne and Mike and his wife, Barbara, and brother Tommy and his wife, Kathy, as they go through this time where they're possibly saying goodbye to their mother. And we pray for the medical team and we pray for Anne's soul to be with God in heaven. So Lord, in your mercy. I did want to just uh, mention one thing. I've mentioned this to a few of y'all, um, but I haven't mentioned it uh, during our prayer time. I did a little bit of research and you may have noticed that I'm not using people's last names anymore in the prayers. That's because I found out that this is a possible violation of privacy, particularly now that we're online as well. So feel free to go ahead and, and you can send me the last names and I would like to know that, but just know that's why I won't be saying people's last names that we're praying for um, as part of our live cast. Uh, Anna Alicia has two prayer requests for her cousin Yesenia who is only 15 and who had her appendix removed. And so we want to pray for Yesenia and for her medical team. It must be scary to have an operation like that when you're just 15. So Lord, in your mercy. And also for her friends, Jimmy and Jill, because Jill's mother had surgery to remove a tumor. And so we're praying it's not cancerous and for a speedy recovery. And so, yes, we want to lift up Jimmy and Jill and for Jill's mother and for their medical team, that it does come back benign, and they, she does have a speedy recovery. So, Lord, in your mercy. Uh, we want to be praying for uh, some of Jenna's cousins, their mother, Jenna's aunt. Um, Pat, Brenda passed away last week. So we want to pray for comfort for those cousins and for Jenna and for the entire family. If you recall, um, Jenna's family just lost uh, her grandmother just a few weeks ago, and here's another death in the family. And so we want to pray praying for all of Jenna's family dealing with this time. So just pray for comfort. Lord, in your mercy. Um, Rachel asked that we pray for uh, one of her co-workers, Pearl, who lost her sister-in-law last week. So a prayer for peace and comfort for Pearl and her family. Lord, in, her, in your mercy. And then we want to be praying for Trent, who is one of the Tanner's neighbors. He has 
art, excuse me, heart issues, and also then um, for Chris's father, Irv, as well. So we want to pray as they deal with heart and health issues. Lord, in your mercy. Jan Noel asked that we uh, give a little round of thanks for the store, store employees that helped her get a back-ordered microwave oven and for the people who helped lift the 50 pounds and then helped her program it. <laughs> uh, and that, that's specifically Ms. Dom, Sharon, and Tamar, and good friend Jean. Yeah, I know the last time I got a microwave oven, I was shocked how heavy those things are. Uh, so with good friends who help us out, moving heavy things and programming things that we have trouble programming are always things we want to be thankful for. And so having friends like that, we know that is the work of the Lord. So therefore, thanks be to God. And finally, uh, Celeste and Michael Wesley talked about that they were very grateful that they had, had an opportunity to visit Wesley's Chapel six years ago, attend the service, followed by a lunch in traditional Methodist manner, which I guess maybe may was a potluck. Uh, yeah. <laughs> lots and, lots and, lots and, and of course, you know how well the English are known for their cooking. I'm sure it was lovely. I'm sure it was lovely. But they were particularly welcome when they found out their last name was indeed Wesley. And so um, I, I, just a word of thanks that, that uh, Celeste and Michael were able to visit Wesley's Chapel. I'm grateful I've gotten to visit Wesley's Chapel. And I think we can all be grateful that um, West, all the Wesleys, what a difference they've made in our lives. What a difference they've made in history. Um, and I, I love my brothers and sisters of other denominations, even of other faiths. But I sure am glad that I'm a Methodist. And I do think that is something to be thankful for, and we think that is the work of the, God, work of the Lord, so therefore, thanks be to God. And now with the confidence that we have as the children of God, let us pray the prayer that our Lord taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.
Remember that you can always find a recording of our service on our Facebook page, on our website, tumcd.org, or through our podcast, Jane's Most Excellent Church Adventure. And so your action items for this week, keep praying for Trinity until this building is done. And then, just as John Wesley did, take some time this week to think about what kind of legacy you want to leave in this world. How would you like to finish your race? Now, receive this benediction. A benediction, by the way, written by John Wesley. Now to God the Father, who first loved us and made us accepted in the Beloved, to God the Son who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, to God the Holy Ghost, who sheddeth the love of God abroad in our hearts, be all love and all glory in time and to all eternity. Amen. blessed by today's service. Join us every Sunday here on Facebook Live at 11 a.m. Next Sunday, we'll celebrate the Transfiguration, where Jesus appeared with Moses and Elijah to his three closest disciples. You'll find recordings of all our services on our podcast, Jane's Most Excellent Church Adventure. Remember, we're now worshiping both in person in our sanctuary as well as online. God bless you in the week ahead. We'll see you Sunday at Trinity United Methodist Church. Thank you.